Listener Production. Comedian Nikki Britton wanted to be a Shakespearean actor before somebody said that her over-the-top expressions were too much for serious theatre and maybe she should consider getting Botox. So Nikki transferred her talents first to children's entertainment, working at Disneyland in LA and spent 12 years as Captain Starlight in children's hospitals. Next, Nikki found stand-up, where her performances remind you of that drunk girl you met in the club toilets in 2011 who became your best, best friend by telling you her life story, her dating disasters, and that you should dump your boyfriend. My name is Jamila Rizvi, and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, eat, do, and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my conversation with Nikki Britton. Hey, Nikki Britton, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled because not only do we have you, we we have your new fringe with us. Yeah, yes, um, yes. Off off record, we were talking about this new fringe. It's very high maintenance. I've never had a fringe before. Um, I'm approaching a, a significant age and I thought, why not let's throw a shag across the head and uh, as you can see, possibly if you if you watch the social video that goes along with this, I have not figured out how to style it yet and adding headphones to this whole catastrophe, wow, it, um, yeah, I've, I'm raising a fringe. My friends are raising children and I'm putting my full-time parenting into managing my hair. The reason I started with that is that I reckon a lot of us go through a fringe moment or a radical yeah. hair transformation at like key emotional points mm-hmm. in our lives. Mm-hmm. Like it usually reflects that something bigger is going on. And for you, it sounds like a significant birthday is on the horizon. It is. Uh, yeah, I'm approaching, I, I'm approaching 40. I don't, I'm, you know what? I'm just embracing that. You know, so many women in the media are told, oh, gross. Coming from an acting background, we were always told, like, you know, stay 30 or under. But, you know, I'm almost 40. I haven't gone through a breakup or anything. That's usually when you cut the locks off, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a shedding. I feel like it's a metamorphosis when we cut our hair, you know? Yeah, You're getting rid of the bad energy. So I'm shaking off the 30s and going with the 40 shag and um, (laughs) – as you can probably hear in the lack of conviction in my voice, maybe I've made a right choice. Maybe like the rest of my life, I will go along and learn lessons as I as I push forward. As you move on. Well, I think it looks great, but I am interested in this idea of you being at uh, drama school or acting school and them saying, it's very important that you stay 30 or less, as if you have some kind of control over that. Yeah. I mean, other than early death, you don't. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, Yeah, I think in the eyes of the industry was their point. Don't drop your age around. Don't drop your birth year too much. I also went for an audition once and this was sort of earlier in my career and um, I've got a very busy animated face and a young director said, you should consider getting Botox. It will make you a better actor. Oh, wow. Because, a better actor if your face well, doesn't move. Yeah, well, because my expressions were so big for camera oh. that he really was like, if you ever want to attempt drama, maybe get Botox. And I was like, no, oh, thank you. Excellent. Not enough on my Excellent. plate as a woman, but, oh, yep, okay, thanks. God, the things we get told to do. I, I mean, we are coming right off the back of, you know, red carpet season and all the rest, and I feel like when you go through that awards season, 
suddenly the scrutiny on women's faces and women's bodies just dials up somewhere past a thousand. Doesn't it? And for me, I like to think I'm immune to it. Like I've somehow gone past being bothered by it. But I do notice around this time of year, around that February, March period, Mm. I start like peering in the mirror, especially when I'm tired and being like, I do look different to how I did 10 years ago. Who would have thought? All of the body positivity we cultivate for the previous 11 months just goes out the window when we see Charlay's in a tight frock, you know? It's so, so true. It's so true. Um, I mean, you know, it's I talk about this a bunch in, in previous shows and comedy shows and stuff, but there's, there's really no escaping the, the system, right? The system is so yeah. formulated yeah. to tell us that... Um, the the male gaze is the one that we should be looking at. We should look at ourselves through the male gaze, and and as much as we try and make it change biologically in women, we're programmed to understand that if we are not chosen, we do not survive because we need a man or a partner at least or a community to protect us. So it's a bit of a stitch up, and good God, it takes a lot of energy to push against, doesn't it? I think that's the thing. I think sometimes if we're looking in the mirror at ourselves when we're tired and giving in, maybe that's just a rest from our relentless, you know, pursuit of something more. But it's a lot of energy. It is. Sometimes I think about the amount of time and energy I have spent not liking how I look. Oh. Like, God, I could have done some big stuff. Oh, mate, mate. Like, or I I just could have had more naps. You know, oh, like, there were so many good things I could have done with that time. Absolutely. And the, the, like the energy, you talk about the energy. Like I struggled with eating disorders for a lot of my teenage and early 20s years and the amount, like the ferocity of the hatred that you had for yourself, if only there was a switch I could have flicked to get all of that energy yeah. towards something, not necessarily like, completely self-love because I don't think it's as easy as flicking that switch, but at least just like off myself and onto a project. <laughs> My friend talks about um, she's a single woman and she's she's in her 50s and she talks about maybe we are just the generation that has to accept that we are going to be tired and for a lot of us we're going to be single because we're not prepared to settle and we're not prepared to accept the standards that we've been told that we should accept for all of these years and once the generations that are to come see that we did stand up and we can stand up and and that we were kind of, you know, the people who began to shift it, then maybe things will change. It's it's the women's equivalent of planting a tree you'll never sit in the shade of. (laughs) But at the same time, it's exhausting turning this train around. I think, and I'm being kind here and jumping us into the same age group and hoping we are, uh, I think we were raised in like the peak of the make women feel bad about themselves era, right? Because we were the kids who grew up on America's Next Top Model, raised by mothers who grew up on weight loss supplements, don't eat anything with fat in it, sugar is fine, everything must be diet. Yeah, You know, like I don't ever remember having full fat yogurt or milk in my house as no. a kid. Absolutely. I think that was our generation without a doubt. I, you know, Kate Moss was this image of beauty. Yeah. Thin is best, thin is beautiful. 
it's a very unachievable look for most people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and certainly not one that we and want. And definitely not a healthy, achievable no, look. No, no. Like I say, every day I think um, every woman of this generation that, that we're a part of, even if you are not struggling with something really big, you know, like an eating disorder or, or, you know, the demons aren't really attacking that day, it's never a direct thought of, oh, I'm worthy, I'm beautiful, therefore, you know, things will be okay. I feel like we have to override a constant like, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not beautiful enough, I'm not thin enough, in, and then flip that and go, oh, hang on, no, I am and it's okay and all of this has been conditioned into me to undermine what is my potential and we have to flip that in order just to walk out the front door in the morning. <laughs> so often and make big choices yeah. and take big swings yeah. and and certainly for you or I or people who probably you know have a bit more of a public profile than usual I find myself you know there's some days where you just feel paralyzed to put something out on social media or or have an opinion or keep showing up and being scrutinized I really hope that it is better for future generations but I completely agree I think it takes a lot of energy for us to be constantly turning the train around in our own heads, let alone in society's view. So take me back, Nikki. What would twenty early 20s Nikki, who mm. is at theatre school planning a career ahead, what would she think of you now? Would she be surprised by the path you've taken? I imagine <laughs> she'd be proud. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we should also mention I'm a, I'm a comedian, given the, that intense 10-minute yeah. opener. Yeah, exactly right, because there's been a big diversion. Yeah, it has. It's been, it's been a big diversion and, like I say, flipping things on their heads and seeing the opposite side of it I think is such an important skill to have when you're writing comedy um, and <laughs> surprising people with a different take and a different point of view. So, yeah, look... I thought at acting school I was going to be, you know, change the world by being some theatrical dame doing Chekhov plays and Shakespeare and <laughs> ironically speaking the words of men from the past. I, I never in a million years thought I'd be doing this. I always was heartbroken when I wasn't cast in some deeply dramatic role. I kept yeah, getting right. cast in comedic roles probably because of the busy face. And, uh, you know, at some point I think... You've just kind of got to lean into what works. You know, you've got to get on the train, where, follow the love and lean into where the universe is guiding you. And um, comedy seemed to be this thing that kept popping up and I was just telling a story at a friend's barbecue once and uh, my friend said, you should do stand-up. And I was I, never in my life, never in my life would I think it would happen. I'd never stepped foot in a comedy club. I'd never seen a comedy show live. And she went and she signed me up for an open mic competition. Oh, wow. And I didn't win it, but it went very well. Just sort of coincided with a point in time which wonderfully people were looking for more women on stage in the comedy world. And I, uh, I kind of caught that upswing and worked very hard and sort of haven't looked back since. So I think 20-year-old me at acting school uh, would be thrilled that she had work. <laughs> I love hearing about your friend because I think it's often our mates who see something in us that we don't see. I feel like our family see the bad bits in yeah. us that we don't necessarily see and then our friends see the incredible parts of us. Yeah. Uh, and 
you know, like part of me goes, I think I would die if my friend signed me up to be at an open mic. That's because I'm not funny. But like there's a real act of faith, right? It's someone yeah. knowing this will be good for you because they know how good you are. Y- yeah. Clara, she's a dear friend of mine and we're still very good friends, obviously. And um, you're absolutely right. I think your family see you as what you they need you to be in order to keep that family dynamic and, you know, those structures that are so built into us, as soon as we step out of the role that we're playing within our family, that kind of throws the balance off. But your friends, oh, boy, I don't know where I'd be without the female friendships that I've got in my – and male friendships, but I think there's something real special about, you know, a a woman who – I've got friends since primary school and they've seen – the whole catastrophe from the beginning and um, they know me better than I know myself and, yeah, they do see the best in you, especially when you're someone that sometimes can't see the best in yourself. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've got those friends as well. Yeah, well, they're the people that keep you going, right? They're the people who, I don't know, you look around and and in the rare moments when in life you're, you're winning or you're receiving the accolades or feeling amazing, they're the ones in the front rows giving the standing ovation. And they don't care that nobody else is. Yeah, that's it. Absolutely. Tell me about how your comedy has changed over time because you jumped from acting to comedy more than 10 years ago now. So tell me about how your comedy's evolved over that decade. Oh, my God, that decade. Oh, oh my God, that decade is right. I can't believe it. Um, I, we knocked two years off for the pandemic, right? We'll knock two years off the the impending 40th oh, for sure, they don't count. Well, I'm sure. As an actor, you sort of walk out on stage and you deliver a monologue and you hope that people will laugh but really there's no interaction in terms of, you know, accepting that there are other people in the room because you've just been trained to accept that there's a fourth wall and you're performing and they're listening and that's how it goes. But, of course, anyone who's been to a comedy show, I hadn't at the time when I first stepped out on stage, anyone who's been realises it's much more of an interaction and a a conversation Mm. and that's kind of how I approach comedy when people say, oh, how do you deal with hecklers? I'm more inclined to say, oh, yeah, oh, do you have a response? Like what is it, how is what I've just said echoing with you, resonating with you? Um, Let's chat about it. And and that's what I've come to love in comedy, that it doesn't exist in the performer or the audience or even in the jokes you're telling. It exists somewhere in this kind of electricity between all of those things and no two shows are the same because – you know, the the people that are experiencing that show are bringing a completely different dynamic to the people who did before. And when I first started out, I was very, I really wanted to please everyone um, and make sure that, you know, it was accessible and appealing to everybody. Mm. And it's always been observational and personal stories, but I think I've definitely leaned into shining a light on shame and kind of taboo areas, particularly for women, but not exclusively to women, that we all feel that moment that you're, oh, you just feel like this miserable reject 
uh, because of a choice you've made or a thing you've done. I, I enjoy leaning into that and and gently like taking us all on a journey through a shameful situation where we can all laugh at ourselves, laugh at how ridiculous it is to be human, the horror show that is the human existence, and all kind of, you know, come away feeling a bit lighter and a bit more united and um, not so hard on ourselves. There's something very cathartic, I think, about being in your comedy shows. That's a weird thing to say because I've been in the audience of your shows before, oh. but you don't know that. No, I didn't know that. Me to say. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I have always found them like somewhat cathartic because I feel like I'm laughing at myself at the same time as I'm laughing along with you. And you do bring that sort of sense of like a, a being quite vulnerable with your failures and things that have gone wrong and finding humour in the stuff that otherwise can feel really cringy and we can beat ourselves up about. And it's almost like you've set out to give people in the audience permission to not always get it right all the time. Oh, mate, that is honestly so galvanising um, to know that that's what it feels like in the audience because that's absolutely, that that's so nice to think that that's happening for you guys because... Yeah, that's what you um that's what you want, right? That's I think if you're going to put a night aside and pay some money and get a babysitter and battle through traffic in a capital city in this country and show up, um I certainly want you to like to walk away feeling feeling better than you walked in and feeling yeah, like you say more connected to yourself and to other people with with less I don't know, loathing about your dark little secrets. We're all grubby little piglets at the end of the day somewhere, aren't we? It's just nice to have someone say, hey, it's all right, mate. You know, we're all there. We'll get through it together. You mentioned earlier that you are combining some acting with your comedy now as well. Tell me about the interaction between those industries. So you've got live theatre. I'm going to give myself three hands. You've got live <laughs> theatre on the one hand, comedy on the other hand, and then in my third hand you've got TV. What's the interaction like between crossing those industries? Is there a level of like snobbishness? Is there a hierarchy in people's heads? That's interesting. Um, I think that comedy is the bottom rung. <laughs> and I hope that I don't offend anyone by saying yeah, this, right. but I think it just, yeah, in terms of the respect of in, in the arts industry, I think comedy is the bottom of the ladder in terms of respect for an art form, which is ironic because comedians are writers, we are performers, we are content creators, you know, we are pundits for want of a better word, you know, there's a lot of call for comedians to have an opinion about things and be on panel shows and talk to topical issues. So it, it does kind of use a lot of different skills and yet I think as an art form it probably is one of the least respected. I think theatre holds kind of some grandiosity but, you know, that's beautiful. That's a very, very, very long-standing tradition, much longer than it's been happening in this country. You know, when you look at the history of it all, stand-up comedy is its the new kid on the block but it's, um, it is more complex than I think people or the industry gives it credit for a lot of the time. It's one thing to perform to an audience of adults. There's kind of like a, an unspoken contract there, right, of like we're here to do a thing, you applaud here, you laugh here, 
uh, we all play nicely. The people who do not play nicely are small children. <laughs> and I know that you've worked as Captain Starlight in kids' hospitals in the past. Yes. Can you tell me about that and what you have to do, what you have to change about yourself to perform for kids? A lot less swearing. Um, they don't tend to enjoy the the, <laughs> okay, the stories yep. about, um, you know, a truffle dog stealing my underpants, stuff like that. There's layers that they're missing out on, um, <laughs> which is for the absolute best. It's so funny. Kids are not worlds away from adults. I think adults like to think that they're much more, you know, intellectual and they're um, – the truth is – Adults are just kids with more flesh, really. Um, <laughs> so I find myself, <laughs> I find myself bringing more of what I learnt performing for kids to performing for adults than I do in reverse. To be honest, yeah, interesting. But working with kids in hospitals um, was uh, is is still probably the thing that I'm most proud of. It's unfortunate to realise that you've peaked in your career. <laughs> Um, before you really kind of got started in in uh, a way that anyone knew your name, because obviously for for um, privacy reasons and boundary reasons, we never revealed our own names when we were Captain Starlights. We would, um, and, yeah. and even then, like if there's little kids listening, like I just want to maintain the magic that there is another planet called Planet Starlight, and all the captains do come from that planet, yeah. and we're very very like obviously it's not me. I'm the Earth version. But, uh, you know, all those captains are very, very cool little aliens um, from outer space who have come to planet Earth purely to have a good time with you guys in hospitals. And um, I think what that does to someone is it brings an extra layer of sensitivity and it brings, like you say, I lean into failure. And that's a situation where... You can't get it right every time, but you just have to approach it with an open heart and an open mind and you need to be led by the kids and what they love and what they're into. And, yeah, I was there for 13 years and it's, yeah, like I said, there's you, you can't really put it into words. It's um, It was the most heartbreaking, heart-healing exquisite experience of my whole life, I think. I have spent a lot of time in hospital the last five years or so and one of the things that would cross my mind every time my own kid came in to visit was the only way this could be worse is if it was you. And, God, I mean, like, I could have used someone wearing purple and yellow and being super (laughs) fun from another planet as a 30-something in hospital. Uh, I can only imagine how much impact it has for kids who are stuck in hospitals for long periods of time. One thing you mentioned when you were speaking there, Nikki, was that you have to be quite sensitive. And I think when we speak about comedy for adults now, a lot of the time we're not just talking about the jokes people do make, but the jokes, and I'm using um, quotation marks here, folks, you're not allowed to make. Uh, There's this sort of a big public conversation going on about what is and what isn't off limits for comedy who is allowed to be the butt of the joke, uh, punching up and punching down. Melbourne Comedy Festival is just over the other other edge of the, the month now. When you're putting together something new, when you're writing new material, how much do you have to be sensitive to the different needs of a new audience? I think 
that in the decade that I've been doing this, comedy has changed, people's sensibilities have changed. Um, I all, all I can speak to is my experience. You know, that is a, a, as a privileged in so many ways white, cisgendered, straight woman um, and I think comedy is such a beautiful thing to break down barriers, to change perceptions, to make sure that a conversation uh, and a point of view is heard from people who come from backgrounds that aren't the same as yours or mine or anyone else's. I don't believe that there is anything that is off limits to speak about if you are speaking about it with sensitivity and precision and care and craft and if there is no malice, if there's no malicious intent. Like <laughs> I often think this is in my utopia, um, there is there's like, you know, maybe a, a, a person who has very, very, very strong views or opinions about someone from a different background, a different race, a different sexuality um, and <laughs> possibly their hatred is so strong for that person that they show up to a comedy show performed by, you know, a, a bisexual person, a, a trans person, a person of colour, and they show up wanting to make jokes. Yeah. You know, you know these people who go, oh, it's just a joke. Like, it's just a joke. I'm not, I'm not being misogynist. It's just a joke. And they show up hoping that that person's going to make the same jokes that they've always made. But this is my perfect utopia. By the end of the show, the person realises, oh, my gosh, I've been laughing at you. But the opportunity that I have to laugh with you it fills me with so much more joy. Oh my gosh, what I'm going to do is actually invest in supporting artists who have this point of view and this little seed of anger or hatred or it just, it actually all of the energy that was behind that is just transformed into energy of love and support and well, that's my utopia, Jamila. <laughs> that, you know, we actually realise, you know, on the other side of of hate is love. It is support. I know that that's such a saccharine way of describing the world, but I really do think that if you can make someone laugh, you can take them anywhere. Nikki, thank you so much for chatting with me and taking us inside your utopia. Good luck for <laughs> Comedy Festival. Thank you. I promise the show is, is it's, it's an hour of laughs. It's very light. We, we, we tackled the big subjects today, but um, on stage it's all pretty goof. I absolutely will not tackle any of them. No big subjects. <laughs> I refuse. No subjects tackled. No big issues. It's been two years since Nikki Britton performed a brand new show, but after hearing that conversation, I know you do not want to miss it. She will be at the Melbourne Comedy Festival later this month. For more information on Nikki's new show, Getting Out in Front of It, head to comedy.com.au. Don't go away from here, though, because up next, The Weekend List. It is weekend briefing time. Helen Smith is here again and Helen has been out in the world, folks. She's been watching, reading, listening, eating, shopping and she's got the best recommendations. She's rounded them up for you. Helen, kick us off. 
Alrighty, so my first recommendation is a restaurant in Newtown on King Street. So if you're in Sydney, definitely check it out. It's called Drunk Dumpling. It's honestly, I have been to this restaurant so many times, but I had a break from it and I went back last weekend and it is just the best. It's so good. It's $10 for all of their cocktails. Like, that's just amazing. $10 cocktails in Sydney is unheard of. And they have also the food, amazing dumplings, handmade noodles, but their favourite at all of... We, this is why we go there. The cult classic is the deep fried eggplant. It is so good. That is my recommendation, drunk dumpling. I am also going back this weekend. So they're making a lot of money out of me and my friends. I think if you are returning to a restaurant twice in one week because you can't stay away, that is a first-class endorsement. You've got me seriously hungry. Uh, Folks, I have got a television show for you this week. It's a Netflix one. The second season of Next in Fashion has dropped. Uh, For those who need a reset, there are a bunch of aspiring fashion designers, many of whom are actually already in the industry, but who are looking for more, are looking for that big break. They're competing for a prize of $200,000 American, and they are going through that usual reality competition show tropes of one gets knocked out each week. The reason I love this is firstly, it's a little bit more professional than a lot of those competition shows in that each of the designers in this season are vaguely established. They've got some kind of name and talent uh, that is sort of already making some money in the industry. And so they're not necessarily being plucked from nowhere. And it just means their designs are quite incredible. Like they're really very accomplished already. They've got that experience. The two hosts are Tan France from Queer Eye and the incredible Gigi Hadid, who I was totally surprised. I had not seen her in a role like this. I'd only witnessed her before doing her modelling. I hadn't seen her doing more of a speaking role. I just thought she was really excellent and brought a lot of fun to the show. And it's not bitchy and horrible. I think that's what I loved about Next in Fashion. It's super cheesy and, you know, cringy at times because it is reality TV, right? But it's so lovely that they're not playing up, you know, horrible one person versus the other or who's going to get kicked out, who's fighting who, who hates who. All of the designers are massively supportive of one another succeeding in what is a really difficult industry. And I just like seeing healthy, happy competition, not roast competition, as well as the most incredible clothes. <laughs> that sounds really good. I'm definitely going to watch it. I love Tan from Queer Eye. Like, oh, just a glorious, a glorious human being. Helen, what else have you got for us? So my second recommendation, it's, I'm probably a bit late to the boat on this one, but I don't own an iron at home. Like, I hate ironing. You're late to the boat on an iron? Well, I don't iron. Irons have been around for a while, <laughs> Helen. I know, but I think, I think um, I don't know, I just think I'm late to getting on to ironing or steaming my clothes yeah. in general, which I really should be by now. But I have this steamer from Kmart and I am just, I feel like I'm a new person. I All my clothes look amazing. It's just great. I think if you don't like ironing, get a steamer. They're so cheap from Kmart. You can get like handheld ones or ones that you hang your clothes on. And they're, they're so quick. Like it's it's just my recommendation. If you don't like ironing, get a steamer like me. Your life will change. You'll look way better, more profesh. And yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful link from me talking about Next in Fashion because there were so many steamers everywhere. No one was ironing. It was just steamers all around. 
I also hate getting an ironing board out. It's like one of my like silly little pet hates, yes. but it's clunky and it's annoying and I always forget to put it away. And then I'm annoyed that it's sitting there in my living room. Good tip, Helen. Folks, I have got another podcast for you. It's called Black Magic Woman. It's hosted by Mundanara Bales, who is an incredible First Nations woman who is born and raised in Redfern, I believe, on Gadigal land, but is living in Queensland at the moment. And she interviews in these just happy, uplifting interesting conversations. She interviews First Nations people from all over Australia, encouraging them to share their stories and also to highlight diversity amongst First Nations people. And I think in this really critical referendum year where we're having another important conversation, which is about a voice to parliament, it's really critical that we all are engaging in the fact that there is not one single First Nations position on this question that there are a diversity of voices coming from a diversity of perspective from different First Nations, in fact. And Mandanara brings that to the fore really well. So it's Black Magic Woman. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. That's it from us for another week. Thank you so much for giving us your company. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you should download the Listener app if you haven't already. Right there, you can make sure you never miss an episode of the Weekend Briefing or the Weekday Show. You can also find us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, we are there. If you are having a look at us in a feed, why not leave us a rating and a review? Five stars if you can, please. Thank you. It helps other people find the podcast. We will be back on Monday morning, bright and early, where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Stay safe, everyone. Listener.